adults keep saying, we owe it to the young people to give them hope. It's beyond time to take action on climate change. But I don't want your hope. Right now, federal governments are failing to act. The city of Miami Beach is declaring a climate change emergency. The politicians in this building can literally look out their windows and on some days see sea level rise. None of this is a coincidence. I want you to panic. Climate change is a consequence. We are in one of the frontline communities facing the climate crisis, and it is time that we speak up for our residents that are being hurt. Just from a quick little ring we got. I wanted to act as if the house was on fire, because it is. I first became involved with the Clio Institute almost a year ago, once I started learning about the urgency that the climate crisis needed from young people and amounted to my own school walkout. So as a student at FIU, I study environmental science and in all my classes, climate change is sort of touched upon at the end. And I started to realize that no other issue is more ultimate than the climate crisis. And about a year ago also, I became involved with Clio because I attended their communicating climate symposium. In comparison to many of the cities around the world, we are, if not the most, one of the cities that will be affected detrimentally by the climate crisis. So we're talking about sea level rise, saltwater intrusion, intensified hurricanes, losing our access to safe drinking water. So being ground zero for climate change means that we are in a lot of danger and we don't have any time to really waste as a city in comparison to others especially. We're doing this because we feel that no matter how much the youth actually rose up and tackled the problem of climate change in 2019, we aren't necessarily getting the fruitful effects out to the public and the solutions and the knowledge that is needed to cultivate meaningful change. Therefore, House on Fire will act as a catalyst, not only locally in Miami, a ground zero community as Gabby spoke about, but hopefully internationally to inspire a sense of justice and knowledge among the people who will be impacted by climate change, which is, frankly, everyone. There is no resilience in Miami specifically or, or other cities in this country unless everybody has a basic understanding of the crisis. You are listening to House on Fire, a youth-led podcast about the climate crisis with the generation with most at stake. I'm Gabby. And I'm JP. JP is a 17-year-old climate activist who trades in his megaphone for a microphone every week. And Gabby is a 21-year-old college student and activist studying environmental science. So JP, as we are recording this episode, we are living in unprecedented times. We are living with the global COVID-19 pandemic. There are nearly 2 million confirmed cases in the United States and life here has been undeniably different. So as we deal with this crisis, we have to recognize not only as climate activists, but as collective people that we can expect future pandemics and more pandemics as we continue to invade and alter and destroy our natural environments. Yeah. And, and in this moment that we are right now, in the, in the weight of the moment, we can also see that there are countless parallels between COVID-19, uh, this pandemic and the climate crisis. In fact, that's why we decided to record this episode. So... Whether you're judging it from 
a growing distrust in science or a lack of national preparedness or clear disproportionate impacts on, on minority and, and vulnerable communities and, and more, we can expect the same distress or worse with the climate crisis. Now, something that we've seen in the midst of all of this is some eco-fascist messaging. What would you like to say about that, JP? I'd say that, you know, what eco-fascist messaging is, is that we've seen sort of posts on social media uh, stroll by that say humans are the virus or nature is healing. And as a climate movement, we do not expect to worsen human conditions or worsen human lives in order to achieve improvement in our environment. We think that people are integral in the coexistence of of the environment, and we not only fight for the planet, we fight for the people on it as well. Uh, So yeah, eco-fascism is not, not supported by us whatsoever. Yeah, so please, no more nature's healing and the earth is healing and humans are the virus memes. All right, so to dive in today, we are joined by Xavier Cortada. He is a professor in practice of art at the University of Miami, and Alex Harris, lead reporter on climate change and who has recently been covering the coronavirus for the Miami Herald. Xavier Cortada is professor of practice at the University of Miami's Department of Art and Art History. Particularly environmentally focused, the work Cortada develops is intended to generate awareness and action from the community towards the climate crisis. A son of Cuban refugee parents and native to Miami, Cortada has exhibited and produced works internationally, even at the North Pole. Cortada has been commissioned to create art for the White House, the World Bank, Miami City Hall, and more. You can find his work in the collections of the Prez Art Museum Miami, the Patricia and Philip Frost Art Museum, and the MDC Museum of Art and Design. In his latest endeavor, Cortada Projects, Xavier uses the power of art to engage the public in learning and addressing environmental concerns through participatory art projects. And you can learn more about this at www.cortadaprojects.org. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here with both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you for your leadership also in environmental concerns across our community. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Same to you. So we start every conversation on the show with the same question. Was there a moment that you woke up to the climate emergency? Antarctica. Indisputably Antarctica. Uh, Environmentalism had been a part of my practice before I landed uh, in the McMurdo Station in December of 2006, but it wasn't until I was there speaking with scientists who were showing me the very pieces of ice that threatened to melt and drown my city that the sense of urgency and passion uh, that has defined my art since that moment uh, hadn't been made aware to me. And I took it as my life purpose to create art that shared that sense of urgency with anyone who would listen or see the work I do. So now we're seeing that urgency come to a new focus, right? We are in the midst of a global pandemic, uh, the coronavirus pandemic, COVID-19. And one of the things that Cortada Projects is now running is the Miami Corona Project that is highlighting the impact of COVID-19 on Miami. Can you tell us a bit more about this project? Sure. Back in 2000, so that was before the South Pole, I was the International World AIDS Conference uh, artist for both Geneva in 98 and Durban, South Africa in 2000. And I wanted to, in Africa in 2000, capture that pandemic, all of the Africans that were dying because they did have little access to HIV drugs, so that 
we would address future pandemics. I wanted to capture that moment so that we wouldn't forget long after these bodies were buried. And as this pandemic came to Miami, I wanted to understand how it is that the pandemic impacted us at every level, from those who are more marginalized um, to institutions and systems. So I created this process as a way to inspire people with the art I created, to educate them with panel discussions, with experts and community leaders, and then to engage them through a participatory component where they would share their messages, what it is that they experienced in this pandemic. And my hope is that unlike someone who almost misses a car crash while texting, that they somehow forget about it and continue driving and perhaps start texting again at the next stop sign, I sort of feel that this pandemic has the same effect, that you felt that something bad happened, but then you go back to business as usual. And I thought by capturing Mm -hmm. the voices and what we felt at that very moment would be useful for future generations as we address what will inevitably be more fatal, contagious and frequent pandemics in the years to come because of the climate emergency that we are living. So you had mentioned business as usual. And like you said, the work that you do, you're known to use your artistry to engage our community, to raise awareness about different issues. In the first half of the year, that was largely focused on the environment and the climate crisis through your art project plant. So business as usual is sort of woken up now in the life we're living. And I'm curious to hear from you, how do you apply what we've learned in this pandemic and how it's restructured our view of how we usually live to pushing for climate action in 2020 and beyond? While I needed to go into that digital space where I had to not speak to live audiences, but record videos, one of the first videos I recorded was The Future is Here. And I did so at the University of Miami as we were literally taking down the plant installations. We were supposed to plant 10,000 mangroves across this community. We had installations in every single library across Miami-Dade County. And that had to stop because of this pandemic. And of course, the whole purpose of planting plant was to bring awareness to the fact that there's ecosystem collapse and that we needed to act today sacrifice a little today, plan a little today to avoid uh, the horrors of the future. Well, that horror came to town. It arrived on March 13th in Miami-Dade County as our superintendent of schools closed schools down and then all other institutions followed. And what I try to do through my practice is let people understand that COVID is a pulmonary and cardiovascular disease, that carbon in the atmosphere is pollution, that your lungs breathing air with pollution make your fatality probability larger if you have COVID. And as importantly, that cutting a tree down, deforestation of existing habitats, bring humans and wild animals that were no long, were not previously in contact now. Yeah. So when we when we really analyze, when we look at the parallels between COVID and, and climate, there are so many parallels that we can honestly analyze. And just as much as we're seeing right now with COVID-19, we can diagnose the climate crisis as a public health crisis as well. And you spoke about going back, uh, you know, towards what happened with plan and how sort of there was disruptions because of, of what's going on right now. How did um, 
How did you, how were you able to adapt to that digital organizing? How were you able to shift the work, the advocacy that you do towards a digital platform to continue reaching people? So I think, uh, you know, part of what we do is innovate and engage. So for years, actually, uh, since, uh, <laughs> since the internet was young, I've always had a, a web-based component to the work I do. I did it to engage people socially. You would plant a tree and a flag in your front house, and then you would post it online. So my websites have always had this participatory component. So the good news for me is that there was a precursor there. There was a whole pattern of doing this. It's just that I prefer doing it in person. I prefer being with you and talking to you uh, in my gallery or at your classroom or in a lecture hall and or at farmer's market. But all that had to be collapsed to the the way it was before. So it became, it became, I think, easier for me, which is why we were so nimble. Literally overnight, everything changed that way. But I think the, so that was the easy part. I think the the challenge in, in what we were trying to do with Miami Corona Project, but with all our projects, is understand how interconnected we are, how this pandemic exposed the vulnerabilities across economic uh uh, divides across time, how interconnected we are globally, how supply chains collapse, and how it's a precursor of what will happen in Miami with climate migration, what will happen in Miami with what will be uh, a very, very active hurricane season this summer, what will happen in Miami as invariably sea levels rise. So and 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 to bring attention to the sense of urgency that we are at a place with 400 parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere that we have never been before. And what we're talking about is the sweater that heats our planet, that makes ecosystems collapse, that make glaciers melt, and that literally brings viruses to our doorstep, right? That's what we're talking about. Yeah, now we're talking science. And I mean, as you're explaining this, the large parallel between the pandemic and the climate crisis is that relationship with science. And what you're saying we trust and, and we believe we see the statistics, but many don't. In the same way has been shown with learning about COVID-19 and how the science is out on how to protect ourselves and others, yet we see an insane spread of misinformation in the last few months. So why is that spread and that anti-intellectualism we're seeing now so dangerous for society, especially now? Yeah, you know, for a moment there, I was hopeful in that I thought that the worldview had shifted where you were not behaving based on ideology, but based on facts, based on science. So I did at the beginning see people shelter in place. I did see people really worried and people used the words of epidemiologists. So science rose to a platform where it was the worldview that helped shape people's thoughts. But somehow the worst of us came back. So today wearing a mask is an ideological or political or partisan issue as opposed to a clinical action. And that is frightening, absolutely frightening to me. I mean, going off of that, sort of back to something that you said, you know, you're a jack of all trades. You're a professor, you're an advocate, you're an artist. And one of the things that we spoke about in a previous episode, one with artists, is how art has the tendency to communicate certain things much more than science and statistics ever can. So going back to this whole ideological mess with the interpretation of statistics and, you know, scientific knowledge being now skewed politically, how do you think your work communicates the urgency behind the climate crisis and COVID in a way that connects to people? Well, as someone who's an interdisciplinarian, I can see the different silos and uh, what what you call jack of all trades is what I call the ability to use arts elasticity to 
make you see or reframe the way you see things, right? So my job is to use law, to use economics, to use science, and to use art as a way of reframing things. And I think the way I've tried to do it for several years now is make you understand that this is something you care about, make you understand how it impacts you. I want to create empathy and I strive for justice. And in this world, though, what I have found is that it's not so much about protecting the mangrove or the polar bear. It's about protecting yourself and your progeny that makes people act. I wish it didn't have to be that way. I, I, I think we're trying to create a more empathetic and loving world where people care for others because they need to care for others. I think the pandemic showed us that it's not that they should care for others because it's the right thing to do, but they need to care for others because it's how they protect themselves. And climate is the same way, right? By wearing by wearing a mask, by keeping social distancing, by sacrificing a little bit, you literally protect your home, you protect your own family because a pandemic impacts us all. Well, the crisis, the climate crisis is the same thing. Right. The same the same food scarcity, the same war, the same chaos that has befallen our communities. The idea that everything can come to a halt uh, because of this pandemic is what's going to happen in the years to come. So if we know that there's a pandemic coming, then can we be a little bit better prepared? And what are some of the lessons that we have learned this time around is that we have a lot of vulnerabilities, both in climate and in the symptom of a climate crisis, which is a pandemic. We have problems in the way that our governance is structured and the way that we deliver services and the way that our supply chain is oriented. Absolutely. There's so many intersectionalities that come into this, especially with healthcare. Exactly. Like I think that the one of the big takeaways from all of these things and sort of that question I asked is that undoubtedly humans form their ideologies based on the preservation of well-being. And when we talk about the climate crisis and COVID, this is central. Yeah. And with that said, Xavier, I want to leave this conversation with this last question. Really briefly, what is one important point that you'd like people to take away from this experience we've had with the pandemic, especially in terms of moving forward with climate? Unleash your creativity, that you yourself have something that you are passionate about and you can and should act on it because you have the ability to do that, that you can begin to make change individually and that change can be communicated to engage others. And that the only way that we're going to survive this is if each of us take responsibility for our future by engaging others. And I use my creativity through something that I've channeled professionally, but every one of us are creative. Every one of us has initiative. Every one of us is an artist. Every one of us has to create those spaces to confront this challenge. To sit on the sidelines is to be on the wrong side because the crisis is here. The crisis is here. It's going to impact us, not just with rising seas, and that is real, but with extreme temperature, extreme weather, and yes, future pandemics. So unless we act today, all of us, to effectuate change in our spaces and places, we will face the kind of suffering and peril that these last 10 weeks have not shown us yet. Thank you for that. Thank you so much, Xavier. Thank you for being on House on Fire. And we hope to keep in touch. Thanks so much. Take care. 
Alex Harris is a leading reporter for the Miami Herald. Alex covers climate change and sea level rise with the ability to translate the science and impacts of the climate disruptions our communities are already facing. By also covering everyday instances of the climate crisis, Alex adds a direct human element to this existential issue. We were actually going to speak with Alex on our third episode with John Morales, but she was unable to make it because she had to cover another global crisis, the COVID-19 pandemic. And this was back in early March when things were picking up here in Miami. In a turn of events, we're so happy to have her with us today to discuss these parallels between these two emergencies. And, you know, first leading off, like, I want to follow up from that first instance. Like, what has covering COVID been like? Yeah, and thank you guys so much for having me today. I really appreciate um, the opportunity to talk about, you know, how these two giant global issues are colliding right now. And even in March, um, I'm very sorry I missed the podcast recording, but that was a totally different era back then. Mm -hmm. We people weren't wearing masks. There was no social distancing. There was Mm -hmm. no shutdown orders. Uh, At that point, I was covering a press conference with uh, Senator Marco Rubio. Um, up in Palm Beach. And that was uh, back whenever the major issue was wash your hands. And then it just felt like everything went all at once. It was stay home. It was uh, wear a mask. It was don't go out if you don't have to. It just bam, bam, bam. Um, So much has changed in such a short period of time for the way we cover it and for the way you guys read and the news you hear. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it must be kind of strange for you to start covering so much about the coronavirus in the last few months, I suppose. But you usually focus on the climate emergency. So was there a moment for you that you woke up to the climate crisis? Uh, For me, I have been interested in uh, global warming, climate change since I was young. Um, But I would say the moment for me is because I'm of that age was an inconvenient truth. We watched Mm -hmm. it in class and it blew my mind. Um, I couldn't believe we were living the way we were. I couldn't believe that information was available out there and people were just ignoring it. Yeah. So like, honestly, from a lot of people who have told me that the inconvenient truth was kind of their wake up call, it, you know, came from that education aspect that it's like, oh, my God, like Mm -hmm. this is worse than we thought. And I feel like that's a similar parallel with what we're focusing on right now. And now more than the science, what we're hearing in, in both cases, what is really getting to people is this whole storytelling aspect, like real people being faced by real problems because of these emergencies. So I read your articles all the time. I think you're brilliant. Thank and you. <laughs> yeah, of course, and you've undoubtedly used your privilege to uplift the voices of vulnerable community members in terms of the climate crisis, but now you're doing the same for COVID. Um, I want to ask you, can you share one of those stories with us, perhaps? Absolutely. So um, I will say that I appreciate the compliment, but it is uh, a very big glaring problem area for journalism that we have not been a good we have not done a good job over the decades of, as you said, uplifting the voices. Um, mm-hmm. Generally, the motto was always, we're giving a voice to the voiceless. Uh, and now the motto is, no, you're just passing the mic. You're allowing mm-hmm. them to speak their own words. Mm-hmm. So I try to focus that in my journalism and a lot of the journalists I look up to do the same. So one of the um, stories that really hit me with uh, COVID was um, I, I covered cruising a lot in the very beginning of this. And I remember um, writing about Tom Sheehan, who lives over in Sarasota. Um, and he got on a cruise ship, thought everything was fine. The company didn't tell him anything was wrong. And he was elderly and he had a pre-existing condition and he caught COVID. Um, and the whole journey home and the terror and the panic and the utter preventableness of his death was really jarring. And that story 
drew a lot of readership and it and it made a lot of people really understand that there are faces to the names of these people. And I've been uh, doing a lot of, uh, or, or there, there are people behind these numbers. And I have been mostly on obituaries recently. And so I've been speaking to, I've had the privilege to speak to families who have lost loved ones and hearing these stories and making them real to other people is really important because otherwise you can get lost in 100,000 deaths in so many weeks. Uh, unless you can tell that here are the real people, here are their stories, and each and every one of these deaths is a tragedy in and of itself. Totally. And, I mean, the story you gave and the other points you made, they show clear that the racial disparities that we've seen with the pandemic in Miami are so critically aligned with what we can expect with the climate crisis. So I want to hear a little bit more from you. What does this this parallel look like in Miami between the impact we have seen on the community when it comes to COVID on our communities, but also what we can see in the next few decades. You are 100% spot on with the comment that it is it is the one and the same in the impacts to brown and black people in our community. They are already at the highest amount of risk for uh, the impacts of climate change. I mean, they live in communities where they see more flooding or they see climate gentrification out of those areas with the flooding as people are flocking to them. They see, uh, they struggle financially with the ability to react to these changes, to react to a flooded house or a higher air conditioning bill and a heat wave. Um, there's so many ways in which our society is geared to push the brunt of the issues on the people who are least able to deal with them. And the exact same is with happening with COVID. We're seeing a mass crisis of unemployment. We're seeing uh, higher rates of illness uh, among the black and brown people in our community and also uh, of essential workers who are often lower income people who are forced to continue working and their companies rarely provide them with the correct proper protective equipment that we see. So you have your Uber Eats delivery drivers, you have your ambulance drivers, you have your nurses. All of these people are a backbone of our society, the grocery store stalkers, mm -hmm. and they aren't given the protection they need because our society has historically not valued them and not made protecting them a priority. Yeah. And, you know, for so long, lots of media outlets have sort of called the climate question an alarmist one, right? Oh, you guys are acting like this is an apocalypse, this and that. But now we're kind of at that. Mm -hmm. I mean, we see a complete economic, social health, like all of these disruptions in our society that really seem like apocalyptic and they're all very real and they all slapped us in the face at the same time. And now, you know, we're recording from Miami and you have started covering hurricane season now. And on that note, just to, I guess, make things darker, <laughs> how is climate change acting as a threat multiplier more so during this COVID-19 era? Yeah, I just add another apocalypse to the list. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I joke to my friends that it's lovely to move off the COVID beat a little bit and move back to my old doom beats, hurricanes and climate <laughs> change. Um, so yes, I've been covering hurricanes for the Miami Herald for a year or two now, and I have been really focused on the impact of climate change to hurricanes. They, um, as sea level rises, it makes storm surge uh, much more deadly and higher. It makes these storms slower and wetter and stronger. It makes them much more deadly for communities like ours. And that just, as you said, is a force multiplier on the inequity and vulnerability of these communities. And especially right now, I'm really glad you brought this up because the inequity in our communities that we already see in COVID, imagine that you've lost your job. Imagine that you already have trouble paying the air conditioning bill and now you have to evacuate. Mm -hmm. Where are you going to get that money from? And mm -hmm. where are you going to go? 
because now you can't go to a crowded shelter. Or if you go to a crowded shelter, you take that risk, even though Miami-Dade has done a lot to uh, set up a potentially more safe environment for people. There's just, it's a it's piling on, you know, for these people. Hurricanes do the same thing that this pandemic does. It does the same thing that climate change is doing. It is creating a crisis that is revealing the weaknesses and the inequity in our system and is making it worse. Right, I, totally. And I'm the way you covered that was perfectly. And being somebody growing up in Miami in such a strange place, the ground zero for climate change, the poster child of environmental justice, now we're hit with the coronavirus. And now we have to get ready for an already intensified hurricane season. What do you have to say to people who make the decisions moving forward? What have you learned covering this or learning living in the coronavirus that needs to be applied in pushing for climate work in Miami? So, yeah, I think you're talking about a lot of the parallels between what can you do now that would help us in the coronavirus mm. crisis that would move forward, help us in the climate crisis. Um, and I'd say, you know, Improving the social safety net is something we've talked a lot about already today, and it's something you hear a lot on the news about, um, and even just in regular conversation, because we're revealing now that uh, the unemployment system in our state is horribly broken and designed not to work for many people. Mm -hmm. um, and we're also seeing that our healthcare system is stretched thin just by a very preventable um, and a knowable pandemic that people have, just like climate change, people, experts have been warning about the dangers of a pandemic for years, for years and years and years. And the scientists weren't listened to. And that's a very, it's a similarity between the two here. Um, and this is Miami-Dade's opportunity to say, okay, we've got all these experts, we've got all these scientists who are telling us, here's what we're looking forward to. Here's some of the solutions we could look into. Um, like affordable housing, making sure that people have a place to stay, then you don't have to worry about having an eviction crisis. Like we could have when uh, Governor Ron DeSantis' eviction um, stay lifts. There's just so many ways that um, you could protect the community now and mm -hmm. they could, you know, protect us later. So one of the things that you mentioned, which is really in line with our values and principles, is that you talk about both the climate crisis and COVID-19 pandemic as something that should foster community resilience amongst people and the environment because they are so interconnected. We, our purpose is to coexist. And it's really dangerous, but now we've seen a couple narratives come out um, on social media platforms and, and even amongst like certain celebrities that are sort of like fitting these eco-fascist vibes, saying nature uh, nature is healing, humans are the virus. What is your response to this? So I think originally when people saw that, they thought, oh, look, the air quality is a little bit better. Look, there's more wildlife coming back in. That's great. Well, that is at the expense of a great deal of pain and a great deal of suffering for many, many people. And that's why I'm careful when I see uh, climate activists celebrating the like 8% decline in global emissions. That's mm -hmm. fabulous. Mm -hmm. but in a vacuum, they're fabulous. But what the context is, is that that is the exact kind of movement forward um, that people who are worried about climate change activism are calling for. They're saying, uh, don't do these solutions because they will kill our economy, because they will hurt people, because they are prioritizing emissions above all, which I don't think is the right step moving forward. Mm -hmm. um, and there are ways you can do, I mean, many, many, many activists will tell you that there are ways to move forward that honor people's worth and their values and don't tank the economy. Clean energy is a great example of that. It's a way to get people back in the business, in the workforce. It is training them to have a sustainable career moving forward that also um, decarbonizes our economy. But yes, I think that's a really important point to make that, yes, we may have seen some gains in the short term, but they are not sustainable and they are not morally right. Definitely. You 
mentioned earlier that you have shifted from covering hurricanes, climate change to coronavirus, and now you're back to covering hurricanes more so for a second. And it, it feels like you just moved back to your other apocalyptic coverage. I'm curious to hear what parallels have you seen between media coverage on the climate crisis and COVID-19, if any, and maybe what can we learn about the media coverage that has been done on the COVID-19 pandemic? I think that's a great question. I think there's a lot of parallels between the two, um, specifically in the way we look at the science. I will tell you when I first started writing about coronavirus and, and the way our newsroom works is we get smaller every year, um, you get to be a team player. You get to jump in on everything. And this was such a big issue. Everybody jumps in on it. So I remember some of the early uh, coronavirus stories got us lots of comments and emails and calls from readers telling us it was a hoax, which mm -hmm. is the same sort of stuff I still hear from readers about climate change, even though we have very clearly proven it's not a hoax. Um, so I think that the instinctive uh, conspiracy theories and denialists all come from, I mean, if there's plenty of research and articles and news out there to prove that they sort of come from similar places, um, whether uh, politically or literally financially. Um, but I think also, the importance of the science is a really good through thread here, right? This is a moving situation and people all turned to the experts at one and said, help us. How do, what do we do? What do we do? And I think that's great. That's something to learn. I think that um, through this coronavirus pandemic, we have seen people turn to scientists and, and try to trust them. I think the whole don't wear a mask, actually do wear a mask thing was a big uh, wobble in public trust. And I think some of the um, more recent stuff can also, you have to be careful but I do think that people looked at models and they're learning how to say, okay, well, well, this model shows that we'd have this many cases if we did this. And I think that applies directly to sea level rise. Well, we'd see this much gas, uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere if we did X or Y or didn't do Z. And I think that people are getting a little more familiar with learning about uncertainty in predictions and, oh, well, we're, and assumptions like saying, oh, well, if, if DeSantis shuts down the state by this date and keeps it closed for this, we would only see this many. But if we did move this or move this, and that's exactly how climate change production work too, right? You want to educate people that um, the terrible predictions you hear in some of the scientific papers are not set in stone, that there is action you can do to halt them. There is action that everybody hopefully will do in the future mm -hmm. to make sure those uh, effects are not as worse, uh, not as terrible as they could be. Right. So on that note, on that note, because it ringed a bell in my head, do you feel like you've seen with the COVID-19 pandemic that the general public has actually gained more so of a trust in science because of their need? They have to trust the science if they're going to protect themselves and their community. I'd like to say yes. Uh, I think that for a while people were. I think maybe right now we're wobbling a little bit, but that's a separate issue with the importance of um protesting and uh, police brutality and the loss of, of lives due to racism versus the idea of social distancing, but that's a separate conversation. Um, I, I feel like there was a very big time where people were very interested in listening to what the scientists have to say, um, whether they make their decisions, like, is it safe to go out to eat? Is it safe to go to the movie theater? Is it safe to go to the beach? I will say that I think that um, has informed a lot of the ways people look at risk and move forward, which is exactly the kind of thing we want people to see um, in addressing their risk for the climate crisis. But I do think that the majority of people are sort of just riding the wave. But the government says I have to stay inside, I'm going to stay inside. But the minute they say I don't and I'm not getting in trouble for it, I'm just going to go back to my regular life. Right. Yeah. So moving moving past that a little bit and, and going off of one of the things you mentioned, to ground us in the moment that we're in while recording this right now, it is, you know, impossible for us not to mention 
um, the police murders of, of George Floyd and the ongoing unrest that the United States is going through right now, which has been, you know, I think in, intensified by the sort of disillusioned despair that that we have on on our uh, systems today. And, and we even spoke about, you know, how moving forward, um, we have to take frontline and vulnerable communities into account, especially those that are brown and black. How do you think that um, moving forward, those who work in climate, whatever it may be, should address the question of race? That's a great question. And it's one that we should have already been answering and asking decades ago. Um, the environmental movement has been historically incredibly white. And the environmental justice movement, which is the kind of the collaboration between uh, the, I mean, it's the Venn diagram between how do we look at how the environment or the environment and race is still really new, um, depressingly, uh, disappointingly new. Um, and it's something that we're just starting to talk about. Like, why are all of the wastewater treatment plants and all of the um, coal burning plants, why are they predominantly located in black and brown communities? Oh, it's property values. No, it's racism. Um, and it's it's a question that everyone needs to take more seriously. You can't just say, uh, in the environmental community, oh, well, making the earth a better place will make it better for everyone. So therefore that's, um, you know, race agnostic. It's race blind. I don't see color. I just see a better world. You have to make sure that as you move forward and you look at these solutions, you say, how can we make them just for the community? Yeah, that that was spot on. And I hope that anybody that's listening really takes that and digests it. Because if you are somebody who is in the climate movement or maybe is starting to put your feet in it, we have to all be in this movement knowing that this is about people and the planet. At the end of the day, profit is placed over people and the planet. And so intersectionality and racial justice is key if we wanna actually achieve climate justice. And with that said, I'd like to ask you as a final question, what is one point that you would like for the audience to take away in the midst of learning and experiencing the pandemic? Oh, that's a tough one because there's just, as we said, ongoing crises yeah. happening all the time. <laughs> um, I would say that you have more power than you think you do. And it's not just in voting. It's, it's uh, which is really important and you should do it in all of your elections, including the local ones. Um, but you have way more of a voice than you think you do is in your elected communities. You can step forward and say, I want to see solar panels on my community centers. You can say, I want to see a building code that protects more of our buildings from flooding. You can say, I want to defund the police. You can go and say those things. You have all of the power to do it. And your voice matters because so few people go to their uh, leaders and tell them what they think that honestly, you have a much bigger shot um, and your voice is magnified. And I think you should do that and you should get your friends and family and loved ones together. And you should definitely tell your elected leaders what you want and don't rest until they give you what you want. Period. 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 <laughs> <laughs> well, Alex, thank you so much for coming on House on Fire. It has been a privilege to have you here finally safe and intact. <laughs> and I hope we have you here again. I would love to come back. It was a pleasure talking to you guys. And I love your podcast and I love what you're doing. So keep it up. Thank awesome. You. Thank you. Thank you to Alex Harris and Xavier Cortada for joining us today. This has been House on Fire, a youth-led climate podcast powered by the Clio Institute. A local nonprofit organization that drives climate education in Miami, Florida. Please consider donating to fund our community programs. No amount is too little. This podcast is made possible by donors like you. To learn more about Clio, visit clioinstitute.org. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any of your favorite podcast platforms. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Instagram at House on Fire Podcast.
an All Points West production recorded at Unicorn Fire Radio in Miami.